This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Let's jump right into setting the Business Week agenda because it's important for us to sort of figure out this place and time. Uh, Carol, I'm grateful Mm -hmm. to you for so many reasons, but one of the reasons these days is you (laughs) remind me what day it is at the top of the show, uh, which as anyone who is a regular listener knows, uh, sometimes I forget. We all forget. (laughs) Sometimes I feel like I need a dartboard or something just to get me close to whatever day it is. It's a day. All right. Gina Martin-Adams is with us again, Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. She's in New Jersey, as is Dave. Dave Wilson, stock editor for Bloomberg, author of Chart and Stock of the Day. So, Dave, give us quickly the contours of this trade. You heard the numbers from Charlie Pellet. What do we need to know? How do you describe it? Well, it's another day where technology stocks are not enough to uh, bolster the market here, because if you look through the 11 main industry groups in the S&P 500, you see the tech stocks are actually marginally higher. So is this consumer discretionary category with retailers and a whole bunch of other industries. And they've really been mainstays of the market going all the way back to 2009 in that 11-year bull market we had. And you look at what's done relatively poorly of late, energy companies, financial companies, and indeed they are the worst performers on the day. So it really uh, has a look of uh, maybe some concern uh, that perhaps you know the economy doesn't hold up so well And, you know, when you think about uh, Wells Fargo potentially letting thousands of people go, as, uh, you know, we reported based on uh, what people were telling us, I mean, you you can kind of understand why people would uh, back away from stocks here. And that's what we're seeing. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, we certainly are seeing that trade. And I feel like it's a bit tortured this week. Gina, come on in. Um, Your story on the Bloomberg, your research, earnings read for the second quarter isn't about a beat or miss, but the long game. And I do feel like I want to know what these CEOs and C-suites are seeing in terms of the economic outlook and what it means for their businesses. Because I feel like every day we're seeing increasingly more signs of layoffs. We're seeing companies cutting back, closing outlets and stores and so on and so forth. So I think, you know, I want to see what they are seeing at this point. Yeah, and I think you're, you're certainly not alone. I think most investors would like to get some visibility with respect to the outlook. I mean, in the first quarter earnings season, we could pretty much write off through the course of the first quarter, we wrote off any expectation for growth to emerge in the second quarter. And so we've started to see over the last month a little bit of incremental improvement in that second quarter expectation, though analysts are still expecting a record decline of 43% year-over-year in EPS. So it really is a matter of, well, where do we go from here? Uh, if companies are cutting costs, that's generally fine and a positive sign for future, mar- future margin growth if they can also confirm that in the future they might see a little bit of sales growth. And I think that that's the big if right now is there's very little conviction in what analyst estimates imply, and that is double-digit earnings growth in 2021 and in 2022. Hmm. And unless companies start to back up those estimates, it's going to be really hard for stocks to find their next leg higher. Right, because the market, and I feel like equity investors are already pricing in so much of this enthusiasm, correct? 
Yeah, I mean, I think equity investors are pricing in extraordinary policy accommodation more than anything, right? I mean, I think that was what the re-rating was about, is we had, obviously, the biggest decline in stocks since the Great Depression in the first quarter, as is well reported, the biggest increase in stocks since, uh, I believe, the 1980s in the second quarter. So it's been a very, very volatile move, but most of that was, at first, we priced in severe recession, and then in the second quarter, we priced in a new policy realm, extremely low interest rates into perpetuity, effectively. So now we've got to figure out, well, what is our next stimulus to move? And the next stimulus to move almost inevitably has to be some improvement. Uh, we call it from survival to revival yeah. evidence in the corporate earnings stream. And there's just very little conviction that that's going to happen anytime in the next few weeks. Survival to revival. That's a new T-shirt for me, there Jason There you go. Kelly. Add it to the list. <laughs> Gina, we have a list that we've been keeping over the last four months of just really clever things and things that are so apropos in terms of our environment. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We're checking in today with Dr. Crystal Watson. She's a senior scholar and assistant professor there, joining us on the phone from Baltimore. And Dr. Watson, really nice to have you with us. Thanks a lot for having me. All right, so let's get right down to the business of contact tracing because we have heard so much about it, and yet I'm going to just come right out and say it. It doesn't feel like it's going the way that we need or expect it to. Yeah, uh, contact tracing is a tough job uh, in in the best of times. I think there there are a couple of issues right now. First is just expansion of this contact tracing workforce around the country. We started out at about 2,200 contact tracers across the country total, and we need to get up to about 100,000 across the country. And it'll vary a little bit based on what is happening in each individual state or locality, whether there's a big epidemic or a or a minor epidemic. And so uh, we're, we haven't scaled up to the, the place we need to be, but it's also a really difficult job. So contact tracers have to get in touch with people. They have to get them to pick up the phone, stay on the phone and talk with them and share sensitive information during a pretty tough time. So um, it all makes for kind of a, a difficult environment. Dr. Watson, I want to ask you, though, I thought part of the reopenings for states around the country was that they had to have people in place in terms of being able to do this contact tracing. Clarify for me if I've got that wrong, because I thought that would, you know, just automatically help create the build out that we needed on a national basis. That was the idea was to really build up this capacity along with the capacity to test uh, many more people. And uh, in reality, what happened is a, a lot of focus went into testing, which is critically important, but uh, not as much focus on contact tracing. It wasn't um, necessarily a getting criteria of the White House. And so um, I think some states took it really seriously and did build up their capacity, but that's not the majority of states. Well, exactly. I mean, this has sort of gone down to the state level, and, and we have seen different governors, it feels like, Crystal, sort of take a, uh, let's say, varying approaches to the virus overall, and, and certainly when it comes to testing and, and tracing. Is it the case that you sort of need everybody on generally the same page to make this work? Because as we've talked about so many times on this show and with a lot of your colleagues and you, you know, the virus doesn't know state borders in, in many ways. As much as we try and you know, kind of corral it uh, in a way, you sort of need everybody on the same page, right? 
Yeah, certainly for the national picture, I think we're seeing in the data the, the sharp incline in cases nationally. Um, but that's down to a, a few states in particular. Um, so we are seeing in, in some states around the country that they are managing uh, epidemics fairly well, although a majority of states are seeing an increase in cases now that everyone is opening up. Um, so it, it really is. We are in this together. Uh, you sound exhausted. Is this an exhaust? <laughs> no, because I, I do feel like, you know what I mean? It's so funny. It's not funny, actually. It's so clear. I feel like from all of you at Hopkins and the medical community are saying, okay, wear masks, social distancing, and we've got to do testing <laughs> and tracing, right? So that's been, I feel like, the message for a while now, uh, Dr. Watson. And yet, you know, there's stories about Florida and then Florida health officials, they're not doing contact tracing, contract t- tracing. And, you know, that's a state where we're seeing surging and you, you need to have these pl- things in place. Place. So what's what's the holdup? Is it just states not getting on board, health officials not getting on board? Do we need the president and his team to say something? What do we need? Yeah, I think public health officials understand what needs to happen. We need to find a way to manage this on a case-by-case basis through testing and contact tracing. But they're not necessarily being provided the resources to do that in, in every part of the country. And so I do think that we see that there's this politicization of contact tracing along with uh, other measures like uh, mask wearing. Um, and so we really do need uh, governors to embrace this, to, to provide resources to their state and local health departments. And we need at the federal level, this needs to be a, a concerted initiative to really ramp up contact tracing. Otherwise, um, unlike other countries around the world, we are not going to have control of the spread of this virus. It's really critical that people continue all of the non-pharmacological interventions, uh, social distancing, mask wearing, uh, and, and really just understand that a fairly large number of people in a geographic region have been exposed to the virus. So I'm listening to Charlie, of course, quoted um, another one of your great community at Hopkins about the virus, but he also talked about Florida specifically, and that's where we're seeing uh, Dr. Watson cases spiking. I'm looking at a story on, um, I just Googled a story, CNN writing about how, you know, CDC saying contact tracing is so key, and that people who are coming down with the virus in Florida, they're not getting calls from health authorities to ask for their contacts. I mean, that it's as simple as that, right? You get the virus, and then you want to know who you've come in contact with, right? And then we trace it and track those people down. That's what it's about. Yeah, that's really what it's about. It's about breaking chains of transmission. So if you get in touch with those contacts, you ask them to stay at home for 14 days in quarantine, and they aren't out in the community. If they are infected, then they're not out infecting others, and so chains of transmission will, will stop with them. That's the idea. So, Dr. Watson, I, I mean, does this ultimately, not to get too philosophical on you, but, like, does this mm-hmm. ultimately come down to the idea that, like, people just don't want to do this. They don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to give up personal information. And ultimately, this the entire success of this rests on people kind of caring about something bigger than themselves. I think that's part of it. I, I do think in those places where uh, contact tracing programs have stood up and are running efficiently, I think the vast majority of people are willing to cooperate and, and provide information and help p- 
public health officials. So I, I don't think it, that's universal, um, but I do think it comes down to the attitudes of our, our leadership at both at the state and federal level, um, whether they prioritize this over other things. Hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's true. All right. So just to, to use the last couple of minutes to get practical, what do we, what are the right things for us to be doing? What should Carol and I be doing? We download the app. Like what, what else, yeah. what should we be doing to sort of put this into action to do our part? Yeah. So when you're thinking about technologies, not every state has a contact tracing app. There are some that do. And, and if you're willing to engage in that, I think downloading that app and enabling it is a good idea. But otherwise, um, picking up your phone more often when, when unknown numbers call you. I know I don't do that very often myself because of the spam calls that I get. But I think in this day and age, um, it's important to be able to, to pick up so they can, so public health can get a hold of you. Um, and then listen to the guidance from health officials around the country, uh, especially as it relates to contact tracing. They'll let you know what you need to do. Because it sounds like the risk of us not doing it is, okay, we'll go out and about, but we're going to have more cases and we're going to have more loss of life as a result. We'll get through this, but it'll be a tougher way of getting through. Is that fair? That's totally fair. I, I, I think there are ways to do this better. We see that uh, across the globe, many, many other countries handling it in uh, a better way. And I think the other option that we have is to reimpose social distancing measures you stay at home orders and i know none of us wants that right right yeah it's going to be a tough few months i feel like we thought by this point we would be closer to the other side of this and it doesn't feel like that at this moment uh, we talk a lot about reality checks we talk a lot about sort of slowing things down it certainly feels like uh, that's the state we're in really appreciate the advice and the insights thank you so much dr crystal watson senior scholar assistant professor at johns hopkins center for health security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, of course, supported by Mike Bloomberg. Yeah, and I highly recommend you check out their website because I've actually thought about taking the course just to understand a little bit more. And I do understand those privacy concerns. We are, you know, we're the United States of America. We're very independent individuals. Yeah. We protect our privacy. I know I do, certainly, but I would like to see us get better control of this. And if you look at countries that have more success, they're doing testing and contact tracing. It's yeah. as simple as that. Oh, it's not and, an accident. and you know what, Jason? Wear a mask. Wear a mask. I, I knew you were going to say it. I'm in your head. <laughs> I know you Get are. out of my head. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. I know this story caught your attention oh, uh, yeah. this morning. Big time. Did mine as well. And it's about the top Republican donor in the 2020 election. Uh, it's an inclusive heir to one of the great fortunes of the Gilded Age. There's so much going on here. Uh, let's get into the story with Bloomberg News campaign finance reporter Bill Allison. He joins us on this Thursday on the phone um, in D.C. along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. He's on the phone in Massachusetts. Hopefully I got you guys in your right places. It's a little <laughs> bit of a wacky Thursday. I'm just going to put it out there. Um, Joel, I love of this because we have to keep remembering it's an election year and I think it's important with everything else going on it's important to do the stories that are relevant to that yeah and of course um, following the money is always um, also important and that's mm -hmm. sort of one of the the tenets of of the way that Bloomberg News covers things and I think Bill's story uh, gets to the heart of that because uh, I think most people are familiar with big name donors and uh, on, in both parties, frankly, and uh, uh, this name, Timothy Mellon, was not one uh, that usually gets batted around in those circles, although the name Mellon is one that a lot of people, yeah. in, especially in the financial industry, will Heard recognize. <laughs> so, 
So, uh, so Bill, who who is this person? Well, he's uh, he's a, the um, great grandson of the the founder of Mellon Bank and the grandson of Andrew Mellon, who was a Treasury Secretary. And he's somebody who's been in in business most of his life. Um, he was a Yale student. Uh, and he, it's the interesting thing about him, and he's become a big Donald Trump supporter, and he wrote in his book uh, about sort of how he became a uh, Republican, because he, he started out uh, very much on the left and very much a, a, you know, a progressive in terms of the kinds of things that he supported. You know, he's an heir to this fortune. Uh, he grew up in, a, in you know, somewhat privileged circumstances, as he describes in, the, in his book. And... Um, uh, but the, the the interesting thing about him, and I should credit the Washington Post because they got, they got to it first. But he, in his book, you know, he uses some um, uh, some pretty strong um, um, racial stereotypes in describing some of the things that drove him to the right. Although really, it was sort of his business uh, interests that uh, that he he told me that were the the key things. But um, you know, but he talks about like the modern welfare state as being slavery redux, and this was a guy who. You know, after the Black Panther riots in the 1960s, some of which he saw, you know, firsthand, really wanted to roll his arms up and try to make things better. And so I, and I think that, you know, in this particular moment that we're in now, it's kind of interesting to see this, this gentleman's odyssey from a, um, you know, from being on one side of these questions to really being on the other. Yeah, talk about that because you have some great details in this piece about what he was doing, you know, as, as a young man, which if you put that effort against where we are in 2020, you would think, wow, he's right in the middle of, you know, the biggest issue of our time and, and in some ways anticipated a lot of the, the problems of race and inequality, especially when it comes to black Americans. Yeah. So he, you know, in the, in the 19th, uh, he started something called the Satcham Fund and he recruited a guy named Ernest Osborne to run it. And this was a, uh, Ernie Osborne's um, brother-in-law, he told me, and there's clips to prove this, was a, a member of the Black Panthers. And, uh, and Osborne himself was, uh, you know, a fairly important figure in, in philanthropy. He started a, uh, a movement to get more African-Americans in the upper levels of philanthropy. Um, you know, it had been a sort of a closed club uh, until you know, he came along. And he's like the second African-American member of the um, Council of Foundations uh, on the board. So he really had a pioneering career in many ways. And, and, and you know, Mellon in his book and told me that, um, you know, that, that Osborne had all these great ideas and that he and Mellon worked very close together. And that's how he ended up bringing him in to run his nonprofit. And they did all kinds of things. They supported something. Uh, they supported a, a show in Pittsburgh called um, Black Horizons. It was the longest running minority affairs program in the United States uh, when it went off the air. Um, and uh, another thing that they supported uh, was, uh, you know, there's different kinds of funds to help build in the inner cities. And he was also did studies on things like, you know, mass incarceration and are there alternatives to incarcerating people? Um, you know, they did that in looking at New Haven. So a lot of the issues that we're hearing about today, wealth inequality, lack of opportunity, uh, lack of access to capital. I mean, you know, his his fund was in the forefront of, of trying to find solutions to these things. And he remains in many ways, a very optimistic guy about how things could get better. He just, you know, thinks that a lot of the things that he tried uh, back in the 70s didn't work out. So, yeah, let's bring it back to the here and now, Bill. So it's $30 million he's giving GOP 
candidates. And really what he's trying to do, it seems, is is really push to uh, gut social welfare programs. Uh, so what's his, what's his thinking in, in terms of how to go about doing this? Well, he, you know, he's very influenced, or told me that he's very influenced by um, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the late senator from New York, who got incredibly concerned about uh, the African-American family and the breakdown of the family. And, and you know, it was kind of a, uh, you know, a very important transitional figure between the left and the right in terms of, of how we approach these problems or how, you know, government has approached these problems. And, uh, and that led him to the conclusion that, you know, when you create systems that, um, that you, where you end up with dependency being a, a critical component of them, um, you know, he's very much against, uh, you know, I mean, I think the problem is you can get to, uh, into stereotypes. And I talked to, like, you know, welfare reform experts on the right uh, as well as uh, on the left. And, you know, and their feeling was that, you know, nobody is ever long-term dependent really in this country, that, you know, that, that it's kind of a myth that somebody is born into welfare and dies on welfare and never gets off of it. But one of the things that he was concerned about was that when you create these kind of dependent systems that you, um, you know, you take away a real reason for living. And he, and, you know, he says in the book that it's, it's work, that he's, you know, he says he's enjoyed his work all his life, that everything that he's done from, uh, you know, trying to resuscitate the Pan-American airline brand, to owning railroads, to um, even having a, a company that treats wood for railroad ties. So, you know, he's been, yeah. um, you know, so he, he kind of feels like, you know, and I think his, his argument is, uh, which is, a, you know, very much of a conservative argument that was made in the, in the 90s by people like Newt Gingrich and others, is that, you know, what you need to do is get people to find a way to stand on their own feet rather than be dependent. Yeah, and as you write in your story, Bill, you know, how his opinions and views really are in contrast against, you know, the protests that we've seen over racism and so many of the conversations, Jason, that we certainly have been having over the last couple of months. I do want to point out, while he's given millions to Republicans, he gave 2700 to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in 2018 because he thought that if elected, her outspokenness would cause headaches for Democrats. Bill writes this in his story, so yeah. I think it's just it's a great another piece. fun point to his piece. It's a really good piece, and as you said, Carol, we both uh, really... Oh. Uh, gravitated toward it uh, today because it's it's one of those names that's going to be important uh, mm-hmm. going forward along the lines of Adelson and Schwartzman and all the other And uh, another perspective names. on the world and I do think it's important that we reach out to different totally. perspectives. Again, our thanks to Bill Allison, Bloomberg News campaign finance reporter. Check that story. It's online at Bloomberg.com and of course our thanks always to Joel Weber, editor of the magazine. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. And you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly and Carol Masser here with you on a Thursday. And we're trying to make sense of what's going on with the economy. And one of the best measures we have, Carol, and we've been looking at so closely over the past few weeks, of course, is jobless claims. They come out every Thursday. It quite candidly is a measure that we hadn't been paying much attention to until this pandemic and the ensuing economic crisis. So let's understand where we are from the perspective of one of the leading economists out there, Francis Donald, global chief economist, head of macroeconomic strategy for Manulife Investment Management, joining us on the phone from Montreal. Francis, how are you? Exhausted. How are yeah. you? <laughs> yeah, right there with you. Right why there with you? you. So why are you exhausted? 
well, we got to find data we've never found before. We have to analyze an economy in which we have no precedent. And meanwhile, I've got a toddler behind me running around wanting to go back to school. It's a bit of a challenging environment. You know, Francis, well this is said. why we love talking to you because you are so real. I am sitting here talking to you, as Carol knows, because she's the only one who can see me. He's got frozen stickers I've got behind frozen stickers him. behind me because I'm broadcasting from my two-year-old daughter's bedroom. Luckily, she is at her babysitter's. Uh, luckily, for our listeners um so i but i want to go back to something you said because it's really important we're trying to you especially you're trying to make predictions you're trying to help your clients and the world understand the economy with data that are really tricky how do you do it well the first thing we do is realize that the way we used to look at economic data we essentially have to throw it out behind us and say this is a new world and even for data points that we've used in the past like initial jobless claims for a long time economists have said that's the best leading indicator of a recession even now we know that there are all sorts of distortions that happen in a number like this like paycheck protection programs how did that change the number what about backlogs in the system? Suddenly we become these, these legal experts, these regulatory experts who have to dive so much deeper into the traditional data. But then, of course, comes the second layer of the job, which is, you know what, our monthly data points, they are too old, they lag. Even weekly data is not high enough frequency for us in a crisis that is moving so quickly. So, of course, we've seen this flood to, uh, you know, non-traditional data, everything from survey-based to, of course, those often quoted open table restaurant reservations. We have to get a sense of how people are believing and acting on a day-to-day -day basis. And unless you have that level of granularity in your data, you are going to miss the large economic swings. You are going to miss the market recovery attached to it. Well, okay. So based on those new metrics that you're watching, what kind of recovery do you think we're headed for? Well, I get this question a lot. What does the recovery look like? Well, it depends what you're looking at, which sector, and over what time frame. So mm. generally what I like to say is that if you want a simple answer, the simplest answer I can give you is that we're probably in a three-phase recovery, which is first a very rapid recovery where the data unleashes its pent-up demand. That's where we are right now. Phase two is what I call the stall-out. And I think we may be beginning to enter the stall-out which is not that we're in a W shape and we see a backtracking, but really that that pace of gains stalls. That's probably what we're witnessing right now. And then phase three is what the new normal looks like. That's probably where we are after a vaccine. The challenge we're looking at now is all that high-frequency data that bounced so aggressively that we knew this was going to look like a V on a lot of metrics is now starting to show us mobility actions, people's confidence. That's starting to slow quite a bit. So instead of focusing on are we better or worse than last week, I suspect the market attention is now going to turn to we're actually going to pause way below pre-COVID levels. That's yeah. going to be challenging for risk sentiment. Wow. Well, and fundamental yeah. changes in the labor market, right, Francis? I mean, I feel like that's what we're starting to see, and it feels like the equity market is starting to catch up with the smart economists like you who have been saying, like, wait a second, this isn't just about getting back to normal because, as you just alluded to, the next normal is a new one. It is not – we're not going back. I mean, we, we talk about that in simple terms like business travel, you know, like all these things that are going to affect the way that we live our lives on a daily basis also lead to what jobs are going to be and who's going to get them. 
Yeah, when I see you know today's jobless claims number, everyone's saying, oh, it beat on expectations. We have fewer people newly applying for claims. You know, we're still looking at 18 million Americans who need to be rehired. Yeah. Now, if you told me they were going to be rehired in two to three months, I'd probably say buy every stock you can find. My problem is that even if you continue this 3% improvement every week, we're talking about a year and a half until we've hired all of those. And that's a really optimistic case. One of the problems in this new labor market is that we are going to have some significant structural scarring. The Fed is worried about this. Economists are worried about this. The longer you've been out of the job, the more we see skills erosion, the less likely you are to be hired back. And just think personal finances. Maybe you get by in a month or two. You've got your stimulus checks. Stimulus checks start to fade back. You've used up what's in your piggy bank. Now we're going to start talking about maybe a second economic wave where we have to deal with the personal or the consequences of that elevated unemployment over an extended period of time. So, Francis, just got about a minute left here. Can we use, I know it's not the same crisis as the financial crisis, but we did see some of this structural scarring coming out of the financial crisis. How does it compare? That's exactly it, Carol. I think the lesson from 2008 is the damage of long-term unemployment. When the duration of unemployment starts to rise, as we're already starting to see in that non-farm payrolls number, that's when I get more concerned that this isn't just like the typical natural disaster, which a lot of people are comparing this to. The longer unemployment level stays high, the longer we're going to be in a recession. Yeah. Francis Donald, you are literally the best. Thank you so much. <laughs> Carol and I are literally like instant messaging together right now. It's like, I love her so much. She's the best. Well, it's so um, practical. It's so real. Yeah. And, and and I do think you're getting to the point of, you know, the longer this goes on and just, just your perspective about, you know, with even those slight improvements in jobless numbers, it's still going to take a year, year and a half to get back to normal. Yeah. Crazy. Lot lot to go. Lot to go. Oh, All right. Love it. Francis Donald, thank you so much. Global Chief Economist, Head of Macroeconomic Strategy, Many Life Investment Management. You love that she had a toddler in the background. Yeah, totally. Because that's real. Because that's, that's what we're that's, all dealing that's with. That's the right? life we're living in. You've heard Alice's uh, shrieking every now and again uh, on this air. So let but- it go. Let it go. go. But it's perspective. And I think that structural scarring, it's so true. The the longer someone is out of the workforce, I've seen it with so many people. Significant structural scarring. It's going to my list. It's going to my list of things to remember about this time. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. And you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly and Carol Masser here with you on a Thursday. And we're trying to make sense of what's going on with the economy. And one of the best measures we have, Carol, and yeah. we have been looking at so closely over the past few weeks, of course, is jobless claims. They come out every Thursday. It quite candidly is a measure that we hadn't been paying much attention to until this pandemic and the ensuing economic crisis. So let's understand where we are from the perspective of one of the leading economists out there, Francis Donald, Global Chief Economist, Head of Macroeconomic Strategy for Manulife Investment Management, joining us on the phone from Montreal. Francis, how are you? Exhausted. How are you? Yeah, (laughs) right there with you. Right there with you? you. So why are you exhausted? Well, we got to find data we've never found before. We have to analyze an economy in which we have no precedent. And meanwhile, I've got a toddler behind me running around wanting to go back to school. 
school. It's a bit of a challenging environment. You know, Francis, well, this is said. why we love talking to you because you are so real. I am sitting here talking to you, as Carol knows, because she's the only one who can see me. He's got frozen stickers I've got behind frozen stickers him. behind me because I'm broadcasting from my two-year-old daughter's bedroom. Luckily, she is at her babysitter's, uh, luckily for our listeners. Um, so, I, But I want to go back to something you said because it's really important. We're trying to, you especially are trying to make predictions. You're trying to help your clients and the world understand the economy with data that are really tricky. How do you do it? Well, the first thing we do is realize that the way we used to look at economic data, we essentially have to throw it out behind us and say, this is a new world. And even for data points that we've used in the past, like initial jobless claims, for a long time, economists have said that's the best leading indicator of a recession. Even now, we know that there are all sorts of distortions that happen in a number like this, like paycheck protection programs. How did that change the number? What about backlogs in the system? Suddenly we become these, these legal experts, these regulatory experts who have to dive so much deeper into the traditional data. But then, of course, comes the second layer of the job, which is, you know what, our monthly data points, they are too old, they lag. Even weekly data is not high enough frequency for us in a crisis that is moving so quickly. So, of course, we've seen this flood to, uh, you know, non-traditional data, everything from survey-based to, of course, those often quoted open table restaurant reservations. <laughs> we have to get a sense of how people are believing and acting on a day-to-day -day basis. And unless you have that level of granularity in your data, you are going to miss the large economic swings. You are going to miss the market recovery attached to it. Well, okay. So based on those new metrics that you're watching, what kind of recovery do you think we're headed for? Well, I get this question a lot. What does the recovery look like? Well, it depends what you're looking at, which sector and over what time frame. So mm. generally what I like to say is that if you want a simple answer, the simplest answer I can give you is that we're probably in a three-phase recovery, which is first a very rapid recovery where the data unleashes its pent-up demand. That's where we are right now. Phase two is what I call the stall out. And I think we may be beginning to enter the stall out, which is not that we're in a W shape and we see a backtracking, but really that that pace of gain stalls. That's probably what we're witnessing right now. And then phase three is what the new normal looks like. That's probably where we are after a vaccine. The challenge we're looking at now is all that high frequency data that bounced so aggressively that we knew this was going to look like a V on a lot of metrics is now starting to show us mobility action, people's confidence. That's starting to slow quite a bit. So instead of focusing on are we better or worse than last week, I suspect the market attention is now going to turn to we're actually going to pause way below pre-COVID levels. That's yeah. going to be challenging for risk sentiment. Wow. Well, and fundamental yeah. changes in the labor market, right, Francis? I mean, I feel like that's what we're starting to see, and it feels like the equity market is starting to catch up with the smart economists like you who have been saying, like, wait a second, this isn't just about getting back to normal because, as you just alluded to, the next normal is a new one. It is not – we're not going back. I mean, we, we talk about that in simple terms like business travel, you know, like all these things that are going to affect the way that we live our lives on a daily basis also lead to what jobs are going to be and who's going to get them. Yeah, when I see, you know, today's jobless claims number, everyone's saying, oh, it beat on expectations. We have fewer people newly applying for claims. You know, we're still looking at 18 million Americans who need to be rehired. Yeah. Now, if you told me they were going to be rehired in two to three months, I'd probably say buy every stock you can find. 
My problem is that even if you continue this 3% improvement every week, we're talking about a year and a half until we've hired all of those. And that's a really optimistic case. One of the problems in this new labor market is that we are going to have some significant structural scarring. The Fed is worried about this. Economists are worried about this. The longer you've been out of the job, the more we see skills erosion, the less likely you are to be hired back. And just think personal finances. Maybe you get by in a month or two. You've got your stimulus checks. Stimulus checks start to fade back. You've used up within your piggy bank. Now we're going to start talking about maybe a second economic wave where we have to deal with the personal or the consequences of that elevated unemployment over an extended period of time. So, Francis, just got about a minute left here. Can we use, I know it's not the same crisis as the financial crisis, but we did see some of this structural scarring coming out of the financial crisis. How does it compare? That's exactly it, Carol. I think the lesson from 2008 is the damage of long-term unemployment. When the duration of unemployment starts to rise, as we're already starting to see in that non-farm payrolls number, that's when I get more concerned that this isn't just like the typical natural disaster, which a lot of people are comparing this to. The longer unemployment level stays high, the longer we're going to be in a recession. Mm, yeah. Francis Donald, you are literally the best. Thank you so much. <laughs> Carol and I are literally like instant messaging together right now. It's like, I love her so much. She's the best. Well, it's so um, practical. It's so real. Yeah. And, and, and I do think you're getting to the point of, you know, the longer this goes on and just just your perspective about, you know, with even those slight improvements in jobless numbers, it's still going to take a year, year and a half to get back to normal. Yeah, it's crazy. Lot, lot to go. Lot to go. Oh, All right. Love it. Francis Donald, thank you so much. Global Chief Economist, Head of Macroeconomic Strategy, Many Life Investment Management. You love that she had a toddler in the background. Yeah, totally. Because that's real. Because that's we're, the, what we're that's, all dealing that's with, That's the right? life we're living in. You've heard Alice's uh, shrieking every now and again uh, on this air. So let but, it go. Let it go. go. But it's perspective. And I think that structural scarring, it's so true. The the longer someone is out of the workforce, I've seen it with so many people. Significant structural scarring. It's going to my list. It's going to my list of things to remember about this time. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. When this story hit the terminal, uh, we were actually in our morning meeting, and Carol, you were the first to point it out with, I think uh, the word was WOA, um, <laughs> which tends to be what you say. It's a great scoop by Hannah Levitt, our finance mm. reporter. Really lucky to have her back with us. Her story about Wells Fargo readying thousands of job cuts to start. They will start this year. It is, as we predicted on that same call, among the most read stories of the day. Hannah joins us on the phone from New York City. First of all, Hannah, great scoop. Congrats. Uh, Tell us what's going on at Wells Fargo. This is the biggest employer in the banking world, right? It is, yeah. And hey, thanks for having me, you guys. Um, Yeah, so Wells Fargo is poised to uh, begin thousands of layoffs this year. Um, And the situation with Wells Fargo is you know, their expenses have been a big issue for a long time. This is not uh, solely a COVID thing. Right. Um, people are expensive. You know, we've been talking about this issue. As as I'm sure you recall, Wells Fargo had, uh, in 2016, it came out that employees had opened millions of potentially fake accounts. And really from there, they've, they've had to deal with a lot of legal expenses and fines and things like that. Um, so expenses have been a huge focal point for them, a huge focal point for investors. And Charlie Sharp, who took over late last year as CEO, has been, uh, he's made no secret of his prioritizing of that issue. Well, right, exactly, Hannah, right? This is an opportunity because you know 
better than most that part of the problem at Wells Fargo was the culture. And I do wonder whether Charlie, as someone coming in from the outside saying, all right, this is an opportunity for me to really kind of right this ship and figure out what doesn't really work in it and is holding Wells Fargo back. And, and I agree it's the environment, but right, he's got to be thinking this through. Yeah, definitely. So when he when he started, he said that he was launching a strategic review, that it would take most of the year um, and that, you know, everything was on the table as far as that review went. So uh, headcount reductions were very much a thing in the picture prior to COVID. Um, Obviously, with the worsening outlook, you know, it makes things a little bit more urgent for them, especially because they announced that they're going to have to cut their dividend. Uh, so that's a driver. But just generally speaking, I mean, if, if you compare it to Bank of America, for example, which is one of their biggest competitors, uh, they've they've trimmed headcount by 80,000 people in the past 10 years. And Wells Fargo mm. stayed pretty steady through that time. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So let's talk about sort of the broader Wall Street, because, of course, one of the reasons this is among the most read stories on the Bloomberg, Hannah, as you know, is everybody who works at a bank is looking at this and saying, oh, hold on a second, is this the canary mm-hmm. in the coal mine when it comes to financial services, jobs potentially being lost? What are you and your colleagues hearing about this as maybe a trend going forward as we get to the back half of the year and into 2021? Yeah, for sure. So to start with some history, like right when this all started, um, a lot of the banks in the U.S. and a lot of the banks in Europe, too, came out and said, we're not going right. to um, cut people during during this time, like during this pandemic. And that was in March. And I believe we were all feeling a little bit uh, differently in March about how long this thing might last. So now it's July. Uh, we're still going through it. And and as the economic outlook has worsened, you know, these banks have to make they have to start making these decisions. And we've seen it in Europe with HSBC and Deutsche Bank, for example. Um, we haven't seen it yet in the U.S. And some of the biggest banks have said that they're going to uh, stick to this pledge through the end of this year. But Wells, Far- Wells Fargo did not say that. And, um, you know, as my reporting indicates, that's not the case for Wells Fargo. Yeah, I just think it's interesting. Um, and you do wonder what, go ahead, Jace, what were you going to well, say? Well, I, I do wonder before we let you go, Hannah, I mean, given this backdrop and given all the great reporting you've been doing, I mean, what's the, what's the read so far on Sharf? Yeah, I mean, he, so he's less than a year into the job and uh, it's a big job for a lot of reasons. They had a lot of public orders with regulators and things like that. Um, expenses were, out of whack, and then COVID comes along. So yeah. it's been quite the ride for him in the past uh, eight months or however long he's been atop that bank. Um, but he's he's been known uh, across the industry for years, if not decades, as a cost cutter. Um, right. He's brought in a bunch of new people. He uh, shifted the business lines. And so he's been, he's been taking a lot of steps and – I think we'll continue to see that play out through this year. Where's he working out of? Is he in San Francisco or is he, has he made the move? No, he's, he's been okay. doing it from New York. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And that was, 
that was one of the things when he was named that uh i know that he made that a requirement right yeah that was yeah. interesting i remember you uh talking about that with us on air low those many years ago when we had this thing called a studio uh, Hannah <laughs> yeah. Levin, uh and then in case, back in the day back in the day uh anyway congrats on this scoop really important one of the most read on the bloomberg yeah. we really appreciate you making some time for us hannah levitt she looks after wells fargo and uh, helps look after wall street for our great team at Bloomberg News, uh, her scoop about Wells Fargo, uh, as I said, among the most read. Really important uh, yeah. to understand where the big banks are going because they're massive employers. And, right. uh, and this is literally the biggest in the banking industry. And kind of getting ahead of the earnings curve because we're going to yes. be starting to hear from them. The stock, by the way, is down a little bit more than 2% uh, in today's trade. But Wells Fargo shares are down 55% here Whoa. in 2020. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everyone. Time for the drive to the close. With us, David Trainer. He is founder and CEO at New Constructs, and he joins us on the phone from Nashville, Tennessee. Um, David, so delighted to have you here with us. And I have to say, Jason and I are probably a little jealous because we would both love to be in Nashville. I've Nash never Vegas. been. What? Nash Vegas. Nash Vegas? Nash yeah. Vegas. That's right. <laughs> All right. You've never been to Nashville? I Carol? know. It's one of those places I've never been to. I, okay. All right. All right. <laughs> so, David, um, it, we're a little wacky today. It's been a long week. Um, tell us, though, first of all, how things are going in Nashville. Things in Nashville here are, are great. I, I think the secret is out. I think that's why Jason's a little surprised you haven't already been here. You know, it, when I first came back after living in New York for seven years, it was still a small town. But, um, yeah, the secret's out. So it's crowded and uh, has a lot of the same big city ills that you um, um, that we have to experience in other places, but with not as much art um, and, and maybe um, cosmopolitan population. And what's the virus look like and, and sort of the economic impact of that? Uh, you know, because we're hearing a lot about the, the Sun Belt, David, right now in my hometown of Atlanta, obviously, and home state of Georgia are experiencing some woes. What's it looking like in, in Tennessee? As you can tell, I'm, I'm talking to you. I'm just dropping my G's all over the place. But um, what, it, you know, what does it feel like and look like from that perspective? It's not good. You know, we were phase three. We had to roll back. Um, all of the, the, the bars downtown, I think, are shut down now. Um, mm. They delayed the start of high school football season. That's potentially in jeopardy, which would be pretty devastating. So I think we're, uh, we're operating under, you know, uh, an abundance of caution, like a lot of places, and making sure we can get it back under control if, we, if needed. Um, but, yeah, it's, I think we're all kind of surprised. We're all kind of yeah. reeling. You know, like we got to, everybody's wearing a mask now and, uh, parking lot in my office used to be a lot more full than it is now, so it's retrenching for sure. Uh, it feels like. Yeah. So, what does that tell you? Um, you know, as someone who's looking at the market from an investment lens, because you sent some ideas over, and, and some of them, you know, have to do with a world that is not locked down and and hospitality names and and travel. Uh, so, help us understand that thesis. 
Yeah, you know, I'm not trying to say here that things aren't bad and maybe even going to get worse, but they're not as bad as oftentimes people think or certainly what analyst estimates imply. We see two things during during um, periods of market crash or economic kind of downturn. One, you see a lot more unusual non-recurring expenses. They're real in the moment, but they're not normal, right? Um, but there's also a kitchen sink effect. Right. It's really clear in the in the data. Anytime you look back over any of the last, if you go back to the tech bubble, if you go back to the financial crisis, you know, companies take advantage when times are bad and sentiment is sort of negative no matter what to, to throw the kitchen sink in terms of expenses and write downs and clear the books so that when things get back to the good old go-go times, you know, they've got nothing but positive earning surprises for the foreseeable future. Okay, so maybe good for publicly held companies, good for their stock prices, good for investors who are in the market, but not necessarily great for workers. And I'm just kind of hearkening back to a conversation we had uh, at the top of the ha- top of the hour with Frances Donald over at Manulife looking at the economy. And she said, you know, I'm concerned about some of the structural scarring that we're going to see with workers who are out of work. And the longer they are, they see skills erosion, you know, their personal finances get depleted and and that's not good. So I do wonder how you balance that in or does that not necessarily impact the outlook for companies, publicly held companies, David? You know, my, my feeling, Carol, is that that's more of a short term than a long term issue. I, really? I think that, uh, yeah. yeah, I think that, look, we've been for, you know, almost a, a generation, certainly the last 20, 25 years in a transitioning economy, you know, creating moving from an industrial to more of an intellectual and creative economy, and people have had to adapt their skill sets. We don't have as many steel workers as we do, you know, as we did in the past, and people are developing newer and different skills. You know, know, MBAs and and universities, uh, business schools and universities are teaching new different skills. I know we, you know, part of what we do with one of our uh, big clients, Harvard Business School and Stanford Business Schools, we talk about how you use technology to analyze financial statements better. That wasn't done in the past, right? So, mm-hmm. and this is something that we need to do. And to the extent COVID maybe forces it to happen a little faster, um, you know, it, it's it's painful, but this is not pain without gain. And long term, I think it makes our economy stronger and better when we see more people forced to adopt new skills. And so, what's the how bad does the short term pain get here? I, that's hard to say. I mean, yeah. I think, look, the, the administration was swift and strong in its response in terms of fiscal and monetary stimulus. Unprecedented, right? Yeah. It's like they learned the lesson from the financial crisis. You know, you know Paulson sort of threatening, to the, you know, threatening the bazooka was not a good strategy, right? Um, and, and they didn't do that at all. And so, look, I mean, $2 trillion, $2.2 plus trillion, you know, thrown at it. Um, you know, I've, I've heard other entrepreneurs, business leaders complain to me about how they're having a hard time finding workers from people that want to work at cell phone stores to people that want to work in manufacturing or, or you know, a lot of sort of traditional skills right. because they're making more on unemployment than they would be at a job. So people aren't as hurting as maybe we think. 
Well, listen, David, just got about a minute and a half or so left here. I just want to get to some of the names that you like. Simon Property Group, Southwest Airlines, Hyatt Hotels. I feel like these are among those that have been hit hard because of the pandemic and concerns about the future. Why do you like them? Uh, the way I look at it is even, you know, most of these stocks in general, big picture, tr- traded around 20 times earnings, right? So if you would assume that they were to lose a full year of earnings, goes to zero, then you would see a 5% decline in the price. Whereas with those stocks we're talking about, we've seen 30, 40, 50 plus percent decline in stock prices. And we know that their earnings are not going to be permanently 50, 30, 40% lower. So if you see through the dip, so to speak, mm. you see a world that gets back to normal, even if it is one, two, three, four years from now, it's, it's, it's way better than what the stock prices are implying. Right, because each of them are down, I think, roughly 40% yeah. or more. So, you know. That's interesting, that's interesting math. Right. Yeah, I, I, that's a, it's that's almost going back to like Citigroup during the finance. I always go back to that because when the stock was like at a buck and you wonder, you know, was it just going to go away or or would it be around in the future? And it is around. It is around. It is indeed. All right, David Trainer, thanks so much. Chief Executive Officer for New Constructs in the great city of Nashville, Tennessee, Nash Vegas. Carol's got to get down there. Your mom says point. I have to get down there. Yeah. Debbie's do. like. Come on, Carol. It's a great place. Visit our friends <laughs> at Vanderbilt. Michael Ainsley can meet us there. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.